0: It's time for Cubicle Insanity. Tonight we are mixing it up a little bit. Normally Tammy does the intro, but this is Kim. And tonight I have a special guest to talk with me and to talk a little bit about that which we love, corporate America. What we talk about applies to most organizations, governments, nonprofits, and any other organizations that are out there. Our podcast is a discussion about the real insanity from the cubicles in the workplaces. From leaderships, leadership and leaders to experiences with life in the cubicles. Before we get into our latest chat about cubicle insanity, for our loyal listeners, Tammy will return. Currently, she's uh, dealing a little bit with her own cubicle, her home insanity. Her sons graduating and going off to college. You may recall her daughter, who was on one of our previous podcasts. Uh, She's moved back home and is seeking another career opportunity. So needless to say, Tammy has her hands full. So as we always say, let's get into our latest cubicle insanity. Tonight, it is my honor to introduce Diane Betty. Diane is a colleague who has an interesting life and career. She is a great colleague, keeps us all on our toes, torments newer employees, and at times times, you never know what she's going to say. Huh? Let me tell you, it's no, it's no small <laughs> task. So Diane, did I kind of miss anything there?
1: Uh, you're my keeper, Kim. You do a good job trying to keep me in line. <laughs>
0: oh, boy. <laughs> <All right.
1: laughs>
0: so Diane, why don't you um, kind of walk us through your background a little bit. Tell us who you are. Like where would you grow up? Where would you go
1: to school? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Michigan in the Detroit area. I came from um, an all-girls family with uh, parents that were uh, very forward-thinking, very supportive, and um, immigrant grandparents who were extremely demanding that all of the girls go to college. Um, And so I grew up with an expectation that I would attend a university no matter what. Uh, And so it never dawned on me that I should do anything else. I went to an all-girls school. In the Detroit area, and then uh, ultimately went to Boston College. So, 16 years of Catholic education. You'd think that was a little, um, maybe, uh, you know, protective. But I think what it did was allow me to uh, to kind of play in areas that maybe uh, I might not have felt comfortable with before. And um, and I had a great time. I had a great time in that environment. So I went to Boston College. Then I went to um, Babson College uh, for my graduate degree. Um, I got that degree while I was working um, and, um, and lived in the Boston area. So I've been in, grew up in Detroit, went to the Boston area, and then ultimately went to California where I ended up working for the Boeing Corporation. Um, right. And then ended up getting a transfer to my current job. And, Uh, back in the Midwest, so kind of hip-hop across the country.
0: All right, so let's dig into this a little bit. So you said you went to Boston College. What did you get your degree in, and why?
1: I got my degree in accounting. So originally, so first of all, Boston College is kind of a finance school. Um, Originally, I was going there and thinking I was Uh, going to be absorbed into the Boston environment and vibes and end up getting a law degree. So I I ended up uh, applying and being accepted into an English uh, major, and then decided that that wasn't necessarily lucrative if I didn't end up getting into law school. So I transferred into accounting, and, 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 picked that that degree actually because the dean said when I went in to talk about getting a job change or a a, a, a um, uh, focus change gee Diane I don't think you should really do you know do accounting you could probably do anything else but I wouldn't do accounting that's more a guy's you know a boy's job so I said fine I'll apply for accounting and that's what I'm going to get the degree in so <laughs> that's what I ended up <laughs> doing. <laughs> it was kind of by default because somebody made me mad <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay so this isn't the first time that uh you've kind of stood up to a male that said uh, no because you're a girl we'll get to that later but then you said you went on to grad school so you went to grad school and why why did you pursue grad school
1: um I thought it was just something I should do. Uh, And I I think, you know, when you ask me ultimately kind of advice for other people, I've got advice on things not to do. Um, But, and that's, that's kind of an example. I tripped into going to graduate school because I thought it was something I should do. So, and my, my, my business was the business that I was working for at the time, Fram Corporation, that makes oil filters, air filters, windshield wiper, blades and arms, engine cooling fans. Um, They actually were willing to pay for the degree. Hmm. Um, And so I thought it was a great win-win. I worked during the day. Uh, I worked in Rhode Island and then drove all the way over to uh, Boston and went to Babson College for my graduate degree because I thought I needed to tick the box. Okay.
0: Did it prove out over the long run that you needed to tick that box? Not that I'm trying to say you shouldn't go to grad school or get an advanced degree, but for you personally, did it, was it beneficial?
1: You know, I think it was. I mean, it was interesting because in undergrad, I worked hard, but not as hard as I could have. When I started working at the factory in Fran Corporation, While the company was willing to pay for a master's, I hate to bring back the girl card again, but it was the first time they had ever um, paid for a woman to go to graduate school. And so every quarter I had to go to the um, plant manager staff meeting and I had to read off the grades that I got for the previous quarter. And as long as I was getting a B plus or better, they'd continue to pay for it. But if I dipped below that, they, you know, they could stop paying for both that and the books. I think the um, challenge of having to stand in front of, you know, all of my colleagues on that staff made me really fight hard to make sure that I was getting the A's and the A pluses. And while getting grades isn't necessarily an indication of how much you learn at school, it was for me at that time, because it was an indication of working harder, being a broader thinker. Uh, Babson College is a very strong finance school. Uh, and so it was also, I think, um, I, I grew a lot when I was doing that. So for me, it was the right choice.
0: All right. So you said something interesting. Uh, so I want to test my little hypothesis I have running in my head. So you said you went to Catholic girls' school. Then you said that, uh, well, you didn't do as well as undergrad as you could. Was that because you were at the frat houses?
1: Pretty much. Okay.
0: <laughs> Partying <laughs> yeah. at the frat houses. Okay. All right.
1: They don't have Greek life on uh, Catholic schools, but it was equivalent to <laughs> yes
0: okay all right just curious there all right so after you you kind of had your first job there at uh fram and then after that where did you go
1: well actually fram corporation wasn't my first job right out of school oh um that that was the job that i think um My parents thought was more presentable for for me for them to be able to introduce (laughs) what I did and where I worked than the one that I first got out of college. All right, so Um, what's
0: your first out of school?
1: Well, I want to stress before I tell you the company that I worked for that I was an accountant. Because this has no visual aids, but if it did, you would recognize that I wouldn't fit the typical uh, kind of um, definition of what you think of when I say this company. So the first company that I worked for was the Playboy company, the Playboy Club. Um, So I stress it was not as a bunny. (laughs) I have to tell you that even the Playboy Club needs accountants. So I was an accountant for them
0: everybody needs accountants. Did you ever uh,
1: meet Hugh Hefner? No, I did not. No? No. I I was not in his orbit at all. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't have staff meetings at the mansion or whatever they called it? Uh, No. I did, however, get to drive my first ever Porsche when I was driving errands for my boss, so that was kind of fun, but that was only a one-time fling.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) all right so why why did you leave the playboy club where you're an accountant Mm. Uh, (laughs) why did you leave them i mean what 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 were you thinking about why you left why did you leave to go someplace different
1: so i got the job because you know i at least I had work when I got out of college,, yeah. um, but it wasn't exactly something that I felt terribly comfortable um, introducing either. Hello, what do you do? Oh, I work at the playboy company at the Playboy Club, so it was not something that I was maybe proud to um, speak of, even though you know it certainly is um you know, it's a reputable company. Um, and so I ended up getting an interview as I kept looking for maybe a better fit job. I ended up getting uh, an interview at the Fram Corporation. Um, and that was in East Providence, Rhode Island. So that's like 60 miles away from where I was living. Um, at the time, you know, the guy was really interested in hiring me, but his, you know, his His trepidation was that I lived in Boston, and he would never had anybody work in, in, you know, Fram in East Providence and then live that far away. So he was like, yeah, I really think you should move closer. And I had to tell him, look, just fire me the first time I don't show up, but I don't think it's right for you to be telling me where I should live. So they hired me and I worked there for five years. I had a great time. I worked in the plant. I worked as a cost accountant. I worked as um, a a financial analyst. I did a lot of uh, things out in the factory, Um, got to know the factory workers and the factory itself, plant lines. I just loved working in the factory, Um, thought it was a great job.
0: Yeah, I I've always said that um, you know many of us that have office jobs and while those roles are important to companies, the real work happens on a factory floor.
1: Absolutely.
0: I I mean, without absolutely, I I've said that all my life, and I won't change that. I think the real work is done there, and the hardest work is done there.
1: So, uh, if if you don't make it, you can't sell it. (laughs) to me it's kind of fundamental well that and it's also
0: you know it's what is it's what they do that goes to the customer ultimately and if they're not um if the employees that are on the floor on the production floor don't care about what they're doing the customers see that and then do you have a company beyond that right so yeah just something about that. You, you mentioned something interesting about um, your first job that as you left, you weren't proud to say that you worked there. You think that that's important? I mean, I, I think you did, it is. as you said, but why is it yeah. important to be proud of? Why did you think it was important to be pr- Let me rephrase the question. Why do you think it was important to be proud of the company versus saying, I had a great job?
1: Um, for me, I kind of identify myself with the product of the company, the products that the company I work for is producing. So while I worked at Fram and had a fun time there, when I ended up working for Boeing, I was passionate about everything I did. I worked in, you know, with the B 1 bomber, so I worked with military, uh, air, military um, aircraft. I worked with rocket engines. I worked with laser weapons. To me, everything that I touched in that, in that company was just exciting. Um, I'm not a warmonger, but to me, it's extremely important that one negotiate um, peace uh, with some sort of a position of strength. Um, and so I loved everything that I did with that company al- aligned with that particular product itself. I now work for a healthcare company. And every day when I get up in the morning, um, you know, most days I'm excited to go to work. So, some days not so much just because you get tired or frustrated or whatever else. Sure. But I know that it's important that what I do is contributing to being able to, you know, provide health care the world and so to me that's extremely motivating and exciting that keeps me going when you know the job gets really like sludge sure
0: okay so you went to Boeing what what uh, role did you have there what did you do there
1: so the first job I had was as a financial analyst for uh, so so just as a, a small um, caveat Boeing acquired rockwell international rockwell international was a conglomerate the 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 ceo when he finally decided you know what needed to be done with the company to maximize shareholder value you know kind of split the company up and sold pieces and and spun off pieces but the part that was rockwell international at the time included light vehicles and heavy vehicles in the automotive industry. So I started off in the light vehicles as a financial analyst. And about, um, I think it was six months after I had that job, my job went away. But I was lucky enough to interview for and get a job in kind of the elitist group, which was heavy vehicles. So originally it was um, window regulators, um, uh, sunroofs, that kind of things. and And then I did truck axles. I did financial analysis for truck axles, and that was pretty cool. Hmm.
0: So um, let's talk a little bit about the culture at, at Boeing. Um, coincidentally, I worked at Boeing. It was McDonnell Douglas at the time and since acquired by the Boeing Corporation. Um, so we both, coincidentally, we both worked there, just, you know, different divisions, mm-hmm. different times, so forth and so on. But the culture... Um, let's talk about the culture. so in the in the division that you were in, was it predominantly males or was it a diverse group of people?
1: So you can't tell by my face on this pod, but I'm clearly not twenty five. Um, and so you know I've been in the workplace for I don't know, I'm trying to do the math really quick in my head, but it's it's at least 35 to 40 years. A- at the time in the business environment, there were not many women. So every meeting that I was in was all men and me. Mm-hmm. Almost never did I have another woman. Um, every once in a while, they'd bring in somebody uh, in IT that was a woman, um, often The women in the the HR folks were women. Um, But other than that, I was always with engineers, factory workers, et cetera. There was never a woman in the room. It was just me.
0: Did you ever um, feel different? I mean, did you ever think about being the only female? Or did you go into it like, hey, I'm here to do a job and we're all
1: here to do a job? So sometimes I look back on this and wonder, you know, did I just miss all the signs, or or did I never really experience much prejudice? I I never worried about giving an answer because I was a woman. Sometimes I worried about giving an answer because I wasn't um, maybe um, as, um, mature as some of the other people in the room, because also one time I went to a Tom Peters, um, uh, um, speech and he was talking about diversity in the workplace. And he looked over at the table that I happened to be with. And it was, all, as he pointed out, it was all white bald headed men and me. So he, he didn't think the table was terribly diverse. Um, but I, I just, I never worried about that when I was interacting with people. Um, Every once in a while, I'd get shocked by, you know, some stupid comment, but often what held me back was really my concern about whether or not I was, I, I was mature enough or, or had enough experience to answer a question because often I was there with, you know, VPs or corporate VPs or, you know, or the president of the business, depending on the job that I was in. And so I I might hold back because of that, which I think in retrospect, you need a little bit of hold back, but I think, um, you know, people people bring you into those meetings for a different perspective. So I think people need to be a little less concerned about age and experience as long as they don't keep repeating it over and over.
0: Yeah. But did you ever have a time where – there was a kind of a obvious gender situation and you kind of had to stand up for yourself?
1: Uh, yeah, there's one that probably is, um, is podcast friendly and perhaps <laughs> one that isn't. Hey, we um, on but, here all the time, so not to worry. <laughs> okay. So, so there's really only two, two circumstances that I can think of. The one was when I had um, I had left Fram Corporation and hadn't quite transitioned over to Boeing, so my interim stop was at the Burroughs Corporation, which, unless you're really old, you probably don't know, used to be a computer company. Um, And so I worked in the financial analysis group there, and I was kind of low man on the totem pole. And I can remember interacting with a guy that had been there for quite a while, but, you know, I was given a chunk of responsibility that was at least equal to his. And I, I think maybe in retrospect, he wasn't particularly happy. But, you know, when he was asking me to do something, he would refer to me as honey, honey or sweetheart. And I used to just beg him, you know, please don't, you know, Bill, please don't call me honey. I, don't call me sweetheart. Call me, call me asshole. Call me Diane. Call me by my last name, Betty. Call me anything, but please stop calling me sweetheart. And and he just wouldn't do it. He just kind of ignored me and just continued referring to, and, and it was in front of other people. And I think, um, you know, I was, I was, young and I have I had I don't have quite as short a temper as I used to um, but I had a short temper and finally I had had it and so there were a bunch of people around and he said hey honey can you go get me blah 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 I said sure asshole I'll be happy to do it and he got so upset he said please don't call me asshole. I said, fine, you stop calling me honey and sweetheart and I'll stop calling you asshole. And after that, we never had a problem, but it was a little bit of an eye-opener there for a while. Good, good,
0: good. Okay, so if you think of, as you go on... um, think about that you know you had the intestinal fortitude to stand up for yourself you know did did you go home that night and kind of think oh I'm probably gonna lose my job or did you just kind of think you know what I stood up for myself and I did it professionally some might argue you you know saying asshole to the boss was not but (laughs) did you kind of sit back and reflect and kind of go you know what I did it professionally and I would do it again and you moved on from it or what was the outcome? Like,
1: It was, I mean, A, I probably wasn't smart enough to be worried about it. Um, because when I left, I was done. I was, you know, no longer quite as irritated because I felt vindicated and he, you know, he recognized that my name was Diane. Um, I just didn't think about it again. I wasn't worried about it, and there was, I don't remember there being any repercussions from that yeah. situation. Good. Yeah. Good,
0: okay. So, you know, as you, you think about, you know, you've been through a few different companies, um, and you you'd made a comment to me one time that like when you were at Boeing, you, were, you started out as a peon, but yet you were able to get people to get things for you that you needed, like reports or whatever, data, information. Because, like, I know when we talk to employees or other people, one of the challenges they always say is, you know, I, I don't know how to influence. Like, how do I influence up? Or, you know, how do I influence sideways? And,
1: and So how did you do it? I I don't know. I, I've had other people asking me ask me this question. I think I think the best answer I can give is, I try to A. Treat people like I'd like to be treated. So even when you know that you're gonna be asking them to do something, it's gonna be, you know, more than they want to do, or it's not necessarily in their scope, but they're the only ones that control it, or you're giving them feedback. I try to be really careful about what I ask for and how I ask for it. You know, the other thing I I think I try to really watch the delivery of how I ask for things. Um, And I try to find what might work like, um, you know, if I'm trying to get something and somebody says they don't have the time, I really take a look at when do I really need something. And I try to work with people for what what a reasonable deadline could be. I try to plan early so that I'm not asking for stuff at the last minute and then you know, causing myself problems, right? Because nobody's going to go out of their way if it's not in their G's and O's to deliver something for you if they have to drop everything that they've got. So I try to plan ahead and then just treat people with respect and try to find common ground, pick up something, do something for them, if it would help make their job easier so that it gives them free time to get the job done. I I can only say that I think because of the way that I interacted with people and perhaps, you know, I, I strive really hard to have a little bit of humor and sometimes I think people think that's wasted time, but I think it also helps build rapport, which is why people will care maybe about doing something for you that they might not otherwise want to do. Yeah, I think I it's all about how you treat people. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree.
0: So, okay, so you um, spent some time at Boeing, and you decided to leave there. Why did you leave Boeing?
1: Uh, I think maybe for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I was concerned that I wasn't going to be going much farther than I was in the rocket engine business. Um, They had taken that job that I was in that was a direct report to the president and had moved it underneath the, the supply chain uh, leader. Um, And, and I, I didn't, I didn't mind the person. I just minded the activity of, you know, kind of a downgrade. Um, And I thought that was, little sad and I then I wondered what was my next role I was also pretty far away from my family Um, I have family in Florida Detroit and Paris France Um, and so I wanted to be maybe closer because both my sisters were starting to have children and I wanted to be able to you know be with them and watch them grow up and experience some of their I don't know, their events, their piano recitals or their baseball games or whatever else. Um, And then accidentally, I got another headhunter call. And although I wasn't interested and started to, in fact, I hung up the first two times the woman called. And then she called the third time and and named the company and said, wait, wait, it's for this company. And so I didn't hang up. I kind of listened to her a little bit. And then Uh, ended up getting a job back in the Midwest, which I have to tell you, California has much better weather, uh, but Wisconsin's a little more centrally located, and the job that I was in was global, so that as I, you know, traveled to India or I traveled to China or even as I went to Europe for business, I could swing by Paris and attend a piano recital or a hockey game or you know a basketball game and and you know that was really what i wanted yeah. and you know i got to go back to detroit and i would spend weekends where i again do baseball games or you know whatever else and that was what i wanted yeah interesting okay so and i and i got a great job so well,
0: that's even better it's a win win all the way <laughs>
1: There you go. So
0: you've started a lot of different companies. And how do you, have you ever thought about like how do you, when you go into a new company, um, you know, you got to reestablish yourself. How, how have you been yeah. able to do that? Like what do you do to reestablish yourself, to um, build people's trust?
1: Yeah. So uh, I can remember specifically having this discussion when I first, uh, you know, came to my current company. So, you know, in, in Boeing, I had been there. Over 18 years. Now, I'd have been in a couple couple of different divisions, and each division was a new experience. But I had been in the military aircraft for at least um, I would say 16 of those 18 or 19 years, and so I'd started developing a reputation. You know what? Oh, reputation, Diane? <laughs> a good one. A good okay, working right. one. <laughs> Can clarify for our <laughs> listeners. so when i when i started at the current company it was so frustrating because i'd ask for something to be done and it was like you know who the heck are you so you really really have to recognize when you're leaving a company that you've been in for a while and you've kind of worked your way up and worked your way out and you've got a lot of contacts, a lot of people that know you, know of you, know about you, you're able to say, gee, I'd really like this, and it means I want it on freaking Tuesday. Yeah. And when you go to a brand-new company, you can say, gee, I'd really like this, and everybody says, yeah, so what? You <laughs> It kind of moves on. You've got to, you know, you really have to understand that you have to start slow and uh, and establish a credible reputa- reputation a credible say do ratio where you know when somebody asks you to do something you actually do it you have to spend time networking and getting to know people and you know, reaching out and having people know you and delivering what they ask for. It's a lot of effort when you start working for a new company, at least that it, it was for me. So it took me a while before, you know, I kind of um, developed. I think I've got a pretty good reputation. I think it's pretty widespread. I'm surprised often when people say, oh, yeah, I know about you. What, how can I help you? What can I do? And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I better not screw that up
0: um yeah, but but that, goes, that
1: part's the tough part
0: yeah i think it goes though to what you said is it's about the say do ratio like if somebody asks you for something that you reciprocate or you do it to build the credibility and the trust
1: right yeah. e- even if it's personal time to do it
0: yeah yep yeah yeah, yeah you gotta put in that extra effort at first and not that you don't always put in the extra effort. I'm not saying that not to do that, but it's a, a little bit different extra effort. I think when you're new and it comes. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yep. You got to amp it up. If you don't amp it up, nobody's going to care. And you know, sometimes I look at these new new people that come in at you know the corporate corporate officer level, and I think you know how do they do it with the interactions that they've got, but you know i i don't know i can only tell you that i know how i think i've been more successful in you know being able to influence and you know and it's again by being respectful of people you know and and delivering things sometimes when they want them but it's also in how you ask and what the delivery method is for what you want
0: yeah have, have you ever um Have you ever, like, led with, hey, here's my title? Or have you seen people lead with, I'm, you know, vice president of something or other, and I need this now, and I want that, and we're going to do this? What are your thoughts about people leading with titles?
1: I mean, the minute somebody does that to me, I just discount them as being insecure and irrelevant, If they can't persuade me to do something for the value of the task or the value of the outcome, and they can only use their title as the reason for influence, you know, I might have to deliver something for them right that minute, but I mean, it's never going to be a good experience in the long run for this person. Because it means that he or she is not secure in what they need, what the message is, you know, what they have to do. They're only, you know, secure in kind of their ego. And a lot of people aren't motivated, including myself, are not motivated by that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See so as so we think about leading, you mentioned leading, um, You've managed and led people for quite a bit of your career, if I recall. So, mm. what do you think the differences are between managing and leading?
1: I hope <laughs> so. I'm not sure I've got the textbook answer, but no, it's okay you know, because
0: everybody has a different uh, different thought on it.
1: So, so leading says. I know the direction that I want to go in, but I recognize I may not know the the best route to get there. And I work with my team, whether it's a cross functional or collaborative team to define, this is definitely where we want to go. Here's where we want to go. And then to motivate people to get there. I, I don't, you know, I mean, sometimes you have to step up and say, you know, you need to do this. You didn't deliver. You need to do this. That's, Still not managing to me. That's still leading. Managing says that you know you're doing um, the evaluation of the skill set of your people. You're looking at where there's still gaps. You're looking at. How do you encourage them to, you know, improve in this area to accomplish the dreams that they've got for their career? How do you give them feedback on what's working or what's not working? Um, You know, how do you give them merits compared to the rest of the people? To me, those are things that are more like managing. Um, Everything else that I do, I try to do through leadership and just influencing, encouraging, and motivating people to a shared goal.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think um, you know why you said this. You know, you don't have the textbook, but I think most people that have um, higher sense of awareness or understanding of the differences would describe it basically the same way that you've just described it. Hmm. But if you think about okay. managing and leading people over the years, do you see differences in uh, employees today? From when you maybe managed your first team, like just i mean, how they approach things or you know, maybe there isn't any difference um, i i you know i don't
1: notice I don't notice in terms of differences for time frame I notice in terms of differences of my own level of leadership and management. So, you know, a number of years ago it was, you know, a smaller job. It was, you know, maybe different levels of skill sets of people. And, you know, now I've probably got, you know, a bigger job with a bigger sphere of influence. And, you know, maybe it's um maybe um higher level people that I'm managing. So I definitely notice a difference there. Um, in terms of maybe millennials versus non-millennials or you know Gen X, I don't really notice that. I mean, to me, people are always more the same. They all want they they all want to do things better for their family. They all want something better for their kids. They all want personal time. Maybe people aren't quite as pushy or more pushy now than they were in you know, my early days for securing and being honest about needing personal time. Maybe that part's different. You know, I'm certainly more open and honest when I need personal time and not embarrassed when I say I've got nail maintenance or hair maintenance and, you know, take off at, you know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever to, you know, to do it. I I never would have done that in, in, uh, you know, in a number of years ago. But people, I, I don't feel that they've really changed that much. Hopefully, I'm not missing anything. I try to be sensitive to am I giving them what they need in terms of motivation for, you know, advancement in, in their jobs? But it doesn't seem like people are different. They all seem to want more, want more challenging work, want more visibility want time off they want a balance between you know what they're doing at home and work um maybe their tolerance level for the ba- balance is a little tougher meaning they want more of an equal balance maybe than they were used to putting up with before but other than that I, maybe i'm missing it but i don't i don't really see it yeah yeah what about um you know
0: as just- you stated earlier been in corporate america 35 40 years roughly what do you think about like politics like the the not not government politics but like the company corporate politics i guess is how it's called corporate politics you know you think in general is there more corporate politics today than what there was
1: back in the day or less um, I. Um Mm. so I've never, never been very good at navigating through that. Um, I feel like the corporate politics, um, aren't, how do I say this? Although I never felt prejudiced against in the old days, I also felt like a lot of the politics was centered around, you know, uh, a good, good old boy kind of topics like baseball or football or, you know, kind of guy things. And I miss a lot of that stuff and those opportunities to interact. Um, But somehow I just, I never really thought that was the reason why I didn't advance. I thought that was just a reason why I couldn't understand half the people half the time. Um, I think things are a little bit different here today in that there's still politics but they don't seem so foreign to me. Maybe I'm more mature. Maybe I don't care as much. Uh, It's still something that's difficult to navigate through, though, because um, I just like, I don't know. I just like to deal with face value things instead of, like, bullshit. And I think there seems to be less bullshit, but you still have to deal with it. I don't know. Did that make any sense?
0: Yeah, I do think that there's less uh, corporate politics or bullshit, as she said. Um, but I wondered about this if being because more and more companies go to remote employees or flexible work arrangements. Uh, of course, the gig economy I think plays into this. I, I just wonder if there's a linkage between that that there's less people like in a physical office. So maybe you're not grading on each other's nerves every day that create
1: some of the politics. What are your thoughts? Uh, maybe, but I don't know my personal opinion. And maybe it's just that I'm not as comfortable with this because I kind of, you know, I kind of, um, you know, enjoy interacting more with people. I think people working remote a hundred percent of the time is a mistake on their part, particularly if they're new, new to a company, new to a job, new to an environment. I think that you miss so much interaction, so much informal learning and training um, it may be great for you because you don't have to curl your hair or you know, get in get, get out of your fuzzy slippers, um, but I, I just think that's a horrible myth. Um, I think maybe, maybe it's that people aren't getting on each other's nerves, but I don't think politics are based on day-to-day interaction. I think politics are based on ignorant people having hidden agendas um and and i wonder if there's just less of that at least in the company that i'm in we're striving to have less of that yeah
0: yeah yeah i i think that's fair um hidden agendas that's that's i think the root of the corporate politics so Mm. yeah so let me ask you um what do you think about what the future holds for companies what are in for employees
1: Uh, You know, somebody, uh, I can't remember where I read this, but they made the comment about, you know, how um, workers of my generation kind of measured how many years they work for a company. And, you know, workers of my nephew's generation are going to kind of measure their success based on how many companies they work for. So (laughs) there's less, uh, you know, less. Loyalty, less commitment in um, in the newer employees than there were in the older. But I got to tell you, it has to do, in my opinion, it has a lot to do with the way companies have treated newer employees. So, okay, I recognize that I'm not a youngster, but, you know, you generate an awful lot of loyalty with things like pensions, with things like stock prices, And I know I'm speaking kind of big company, but that's the same with, you know, with some of the, um, you know, some of the smaller companies, some of the startups. I mean, you know, there people are working on how do you get a big win so that you can have uh, the ability to retire when you want to, whether it's at 25 or 35 or 45 or 65, right? Because those startups, are what's going to give people, you know, the 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 um the money to kind of be able to to enjoy life. That's the same thing with these bigger companies and the loyalty card via pensions and stock prices where people felt motivated to stick with them because they're looking for how do you enjoy life in the long run, not just the short run and the commitments there. So I, you know, companies are going to end up, I believe, kind of shrinking. I mean, these big, you know, corporate America companies just, they're suffering right now because they don't have the same kind of big impact, big win that the startups do. And they don't have the sexy anchor like pensions that the older companies used to have. So I think it's gonna be really interesting. We're gonna see, I think, less, less of the big corporate America. You just see it all over the place where they're starting to not be as stronger as big, and people are really gravitating, the young ones are gravitating towards the startups because why not take the risk? Why not take the risk where the, you know, the stock price can shoot up as opposed to kind of flatline. Yeah. Which is yeah. where some of the big ones are struggling. Yeah,
0: and the bigger companies just aren't nimble enough. If you think about mm. like the newer employees, and I don't want to call newer employees millennials. I think that that sounds
1: derogatory even
0: though we've kind of on some of the other podcasts mocked them, but um
1: <laughs>
0: we're making fun.
1: Oh, I um, I love them. But, especially but when I, I get my help with my IT. <laughs> but what, <laughs> what I, my point was
0: is that um you know, if you think about newer employees and how they're coming into the workforce, the training that they've had, they've, they've basically, their education has always been on a computer laptop, uh, through apps or things like that. And so they're used to, their, their way of thinking is very different than a very large, um, uh, company that has kind of had this, this is kind of how we've done it for a hundred years. And this is what's made us successful a hundred years. It's not as nimble as um, mm-hmm. I think what newer employees are used to and looking for. So I think if bigger companies don't become figure out how to become more nimble, I think, yeah. or, or quicker on their feet, if you will, I think that they're going to yeah. die off. And I think, you know, you said something about employees being, are companies being committed to employees and, you know, you measure it on how many years you've been there versus newer employees saying, Hey, you know, how many companies have I worked for? Well, I Mm -hmm. see employees all the time. And I think the future of companies, I think companies certainly have changed and it's in, you know, you've talked about like the hooks to keep you in longer. Companies are no longer loyal to employees. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, for, companies to expect employees to be loyal to them, I think is a mistake because you don't offer loyalty to the employees. I mean, look at what happened like in 2008, 2009. Yep. Global economy collapse, mass layoffs, every company, but companies still today, even with a booming economy globally are still having layoffs, still reducing their headcount, figuring out how to meet more profitable through Less, you know, um, uh, financial obligations through, you know, benefits and payroll and things like that. So, right.
1: um,
0: I think that's another thing that, as we think about what the future for companies hold, is they've got to think about that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, absolutely.
0: So, final question for you is: What's the best piece of career advice you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: You know, do something that I did not do. I would say dream what you think you might want to accomplish and then figure out a plan to get there. You know, when I went to Boston College, it was because um, I felt comfortable in kind of a Catholic environment. It was a... You know, a university that had um, you know specified areas for women and men, and so I, I felt more comfortable there. That's that's not necessarily the right reason to choose a college, right? It's planning what you want to do, and then planning what school do you want to go to, what do you want to accomplish. How do you want to get there and, and mapping out some of the high-level steps and sticking to it? Don't have, I had a great career that was really done by default. I have no regrets, except I would have liked to have been an engineer, but you can't have everything. I, I had a great career. I had a great set of experiences, but it was by default. Don't have a career by default. Aim for something, plan on how to get there, and work to get there. You might change your mind, it's okay, but make, make decisions on what you want and set time aside every month, set time aside on your calendar where you're going to think about nothing, about what is it that you want to do with your career and, you know, and, and with what you want to accomplish in your life.
0: All right. Great words to think about. So, Diane, thank you for joining me tonight and for the great insights and thoughts of how we've navigated your way through your cubicle insanity over the course of your career. So,
1: <laughs> normally... Thank uh, you for having me.
0: Yeah, pleasure. So, normally, Tammy states the obvious. And um, I'm going to give it my best attempt. Tammy is way better at this. But um, you said a few things tonight that I think resonate... Uh, with well, certainly resonate with me, but I think also would resonate with our listeners and, and as they try to navigate their way in their cubicle insanity, is be proud of the company you work for. Because you think if you don't have pride in the company, then it's just a job. Um, you talked about influencing, influencing by rapport. Build that rapport. Um, think about how you ask for something. And you've done it through the relationship that you've built with perhaps the person you're asking for, something from. And, um, again, you said how you ask for something. Um, You talked about leading. When I asked you about leading, you said leading, vision for where to go, inspire, and work with the team on how to get there. So you have the vision, but as a leader, you inspire and work with the team on how to get there and include them and and you accomplish it. And you just gave a great piece of advice. And, and I think, um, think it should be obvious, but um, don't have a career by default. Dream of what you want to accomplish. Figure out a plan to get there. Did I kind of summarize some of the key points, Diane?
1: Perfect. Okay.
0: So, again, Diane, thank you. And um, I'd like to thank all of our listeners. Thank you to our active military and veterans, especially El Capitan, as I've referred to him. He is uh, home safely from his most recent deployment. Stay tuned for our next episode of Cubicle Insanity.